It's all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. Hi everyone, this is Lorenzo Franceschi Bikirai. I'm filling in for our usual host Ben Maku, who was on a reporting trip this week uh, somewhere around the world in an undisclosed location. And with me, uh, you know, figuratively speaking, because unlike Ben, we are stuck at home, we have Joseph Cox. How are you, Joe? Hi, I'm good. How are you doing? Not bad, not bad, you know, quarantine life, same old. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. At least we have the cyber, which is always interesting. And, um, you know, today we're going to talk about, I would say, one of the most brazen hacks of the year, the year and perhaps of the last few years. Uh, what I'm talking about is obviously the wave of account takeovers on Twitter last week. Uh, Joe, you followed the story from the very beginning. You were there on Twitter, you know, um, looking into all these account takeovers Um you broke the news that the hackers used an internal Twitter tool uh, to reach all these accounts. So what happened last week? Yeah, sure. So at some point um, in the afternoon, all of these um, Twitter accounts started um, tweeting suspicious messages. It started with uh, Binance and some other cryptocurrency accounts. Um, wait, I'm waiting for... Sorry, there's a siren in the background. I'm just going to start again. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to start again now. So yeah... Uh, During the afternoon uh, last week, all of a sudden, a load of cryptocurrency-focused accounts started tweeting pretty obvious scam messages. The usual things such as, hey, if you send us Bitcoin to this address, we'll double it and send it back. That's a very established scheme that's been across Twitter before. But what was interesting here was the accounts that were hijacked. These were not random accounts. These were not replies to other verified accounts. It was full compromises of Binance, of Coinbase, and other high-profile accounts. As that happens, other accounts can get taken over Apple, Uber, uh, Elon Musk, even Joe Biden, his account gets taken over as well. These aren't ones that you see that get hacked um, every day. And as you say, this was incredibly brazen, incredibly high profile. And I just don't think we've seen anything quite like that um, on Twitter before. Yeah, there was at some point, it seemed like everyone, you know, with a blue check mark was was being hacked. I think Barack Obama as well. There, there mm-hmm. was basically panic. No one knew exactly what was going on. And so it's been a it's been a week. Like, what do we know about the people who, you know, were behind this uh, series of attacks or takeovers? Yeah, so I suppose I should lay out sort of the chronology of what we found out and when, because, of course, this was, this was a very fast-moving story, not just when it came to the hacking itself, but the reporting around it. Um, so as mentioned, these accounts get hijacked somehow. That same day, we then break the news and figure out that some sort of internal Twitter tool was leveraged to access these accounts. Now, tech companies everywhere will have these tools. Facebook will have one. MySpace had one back in the day. Snapchat has something similar. And these are used by employees or workers or customer support representatives to interact with accounts in some way. And the screenshots that we got, they would show stuff like, oh, is this person suspended? Are they temporarily suspended? What's the email address linked to that account? So what we found is that hackers somehow 
were using this tool to change the email address linked to an account, say Binance or whoever it may be, link it to an email address the hackers controlled, and then they can request a password reset through that email because now they're now linked to the account and they essentially take it over and they can control it like anybody else would. Um, so we find that we're then told by people that we knew in the simjacking community that seemed to be um, linked to this, or sorry, who were linked to this, they said that... Um, a Twitter employee was involved. Again, this is all very fast moving and then New York Times and TechCrunch get more information and it turns out that it wasn't an employee per se or at least it doesn't... It Let me let me um, just do that last little bit and you can, mm-hmm. it can be edited back. More information then comes out from other outlets including New York Times who fought, and from my reading of it, it appears that it wasn't necessarily an employee but it appears to be a hacker who was posing as an employee to then sell the service to somebody else. Um, so they built upon the story and got more information. But long story short, it seems that these hackers somehow got access to this tool and then were selling um, sort of the capability of that tool offered to other people. So, hey, do you want to take over this account? Do you want to take over a so-called OG users handle, which, as you know, is a Twitter handle with one or two characters, which are reputationally and financially valuable in the digital underground. And it just escalated um, from there. Yeah, I think it's fascinating that like what, you know, is probably the most uh, surprising hack of, of the year was car- was allegedly carried out by a bunch of teenagers who, uh, you know, are focused on same swapping and are not like, you know, Russian hackers or Chinese hackers. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, we've we've covered this community, this sim swapping community, for years, um, and it seems like they, even though they're not technically that good, they seem to uh, have a great impact with impact with their acts. And um, so, so yeah, as you said, you reported the story. New York Times added some information, and, and it seems like everything is being so far, or at least part of it, is being confirmed by Twitter, right? Who came up with the sort of like a rundown of what they know so far. What has is, what is Twitter told us? Yeah, so Twitter, I mean, to its credit, as of course I am an ordinary Twitter user as well, so to the company's credit, it has been pushing updates um, regularly, frequently, and very much publicly on its own Twitter support account. Um, so rather than getting stuff through, you know, sort of media statements, which then proliferate through um, media reports, They've just been updating um, users through that. Um, and one of those updates, most interestingly, said that they believe that this hack was um, uh, triggered by hackers socially engineering their way into an internal tool used by employees. So, yes, that, that adds to our earlier reporting on the tool and then... Um, the further reporting on how perhaps they got access. We still don't really know exactly how the hackers got access to the tool in the first place. All we know is that a tool was used and somehow the hackers got in. And the New York Times had some color around that on um, potentially the hackers found credentials in a Twitter Slack chat uh, and then Mm. managed to pivot after that. But we don't we don't quite know how they got into the Slack chat in the first place just yet. So there is still stuff there, but the sort of broad contours of it have been painted out. And Twitter, for its part, is um, continuing to investigate as far as I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess the the way that they got in into, like the first uh, foot foothold is probably the key to the investigation and probably something that Twitter is still trying to figure out. And, and I think that you hit a very important point. I think that despite the fact that this was quite an embarrassing hack because, you know, literally everyone is on Twitter all day these days. 
especially like journalists. So, you know, a hack like this gets a lot of attention because we're all there as journalists. I think it's fair to say that Twitter has responded pretty well. Um, you know, even the way mm-hmm. that they mitigated at the beginning, which was uh, by uh, disabling um, verified accounts and um, uh, suspending uh, accounts that had changed the password. Obviously, this was very destructive for a lot of people, but perhaps it was the right right thing to do at the time. Yeah, I mean, just to clarify for listeners, Twitter really did go into sort of scorched earth apocalypse approach, which, as you say, they just stopped people with verified accounts being able to tweet at all. So even if your account wasn't taken over, you were just one of the people who happens to have a blue uh, check mark. you weren't able to tweet. Presumably Twitter did this, you know, to stop any more scams coming out because it seemed that the attackers were targeting primarily verified accounts. But that is still crazy that a large chunk of the social network essentially had to be shut down for them to even respond to a hack. I mean, I've never seen anything quite like that in uh, my time reporting on hacks on social networks. But then again, we've never really seen something on this scale before. So yeah, as we, as we said, like the, the hackers hit so many accounts and, and you know, these tweets, these fraudulent tweets were everywhere. Um, so a lot of people actually fell for it. In fact, uh, according to the, um, you know, the, the information, uh, the open source information on the Bitcoin wallet of the hackers, they made around 120K, which is not bad. Uh, but there's been a lot of speculation about the motives of the hackers, you know, especially a lot of cybersecurity experts on Twitter who like to like, you know, talk about, um, you know, incidents that they don't have direct knowledge of, uh, have speculated that, you know, there must be some ulterior motive because the, you know, the hackers had so much uh, great access that it can't be just for this little money, right? So what what do you think about this? And, you know, what do we know about the the, the motives of the hackers? I think the best way of looking at or figuring out the motives of the hackers is, um, you know, looking at their past behavior. As we mentioned, this group um, very much overlaps with the SIM swapping community. I mean, some of the people I spoke to who were um, buying or using the service to take over accounts, as in they showed me they had control of some of the accounts that were taken over, they are part of the SIM swapping community. Mm-hmm. And if we go back and we we look at what they've done before, they've done it to generate money. Uh, sometimes it's tens of thousands, sometimes it's hundreds of thousands of dollars. In other instances, it's just to get those OG handles again. And someone did show uh, sort of an email confirmation from Twitter showing that they now had control of one of these OG handles. So when it comes to motives, yes, sure, they got access to an insanely powerful tool, but it really does look like it was just money or getting the handles in the first place. I mean, we've reported before about how SIM swappers have gone and planted remote desktop protocol mm-hmm. tools inside at and Sprint um, and another telecom, which I can't quite remember, so I won't, you know, point out a specific uh, a third one right now because I don't want to get it wrong. But basically, SIM swappers have put tools in there so they can remotely control computers um, belonging to these companies to access the internal tools. I mean, this sounds very, very similar to that. It just happens that the target is Twitter itself rather than um, a telecom. So I would just line up the motives in that and. People have been really, really overthinking it a lot. And just because somebody has insane access doesn't mean there's some sort of 
grand conspiracy about what they're trying to do. I mean, you can just see what they're trying to do, but what they literally did, <laughs> which is take over accounts and make 100K. And 100K for an hour's work, maybe a little bit more, really isn't that bad. Yeah, and, and actually, yeah, and as you said, like these guys are, you know, young. They are all they care is about money. Sometimes they don't even care about money. They just care about getting accounts, like you know, at number six, something mm-hmm. they can brag about on a forum and with their friends. And you know, they're probably bored because it's summer and they are stuck at home. Like sometimes it's just that simple. You know, it's not a, there. There isn't always like a grand conspiracy of like shadowy Russian spies. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that Marcus Hutchins, uh, you know, was most better known as Malware Tech, uh, who obviously has a lot of experience both chasing hackers and you know being part of uh, of the cybercrime underground, put it very well. He said, "Quote: Sometimes hackers come across valuable access they don't know how they properly how to properly monetize. Just because they only made a hundred k from having access to almost every Twitter account doesn't necessarily mean there's a deeper hidden motive. Some hackers just aren't creative." And that's the, you know, I think that's what sometimes we forget, you know, as much as you need to be smart to be a hacker, it doesn't mean that every hacker is a genius, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I I get um, Hutchins' point there. I would maybe disagree a little bit with when he said some hackers just aren't creative. I mean, to be fair to the sim swapping community, they they can be creative, you know. They they can get RDP into telecoms. They can get into uh, internal Twitter tools. I think what really separates them is just their brazenness and their audacity. Like, sure, we all kind of know that you could probably social engineer your way into a social network or into Twitter specifically, but who has actually done it? Sure, the spies may have done it. We've had Twitter insiders working for Saudi Arabia, but that was a much more low key operation here. This was loud. This was in your face. This was taking over some of the most high-profile accounts on a social network. And who's going to do that? It's it's um, younger hackers who don't really care, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of people have you know, including us, obviously, have, have interviewed uh, sim swappers, and they do seem to be very careless, and they, you know, they seem to think that they'll never get caught, and then and just do things that. You know, like this, like taking over a bunch of accounts and uh, trying to make some money. Uh, mm-hmm. They, I presume, they probably get caught actually because you know you don't you don't do something like this and get away with it. But I guess we'll see what happens in the next few weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I can't imagine um, they're going to really get away with it now with the FBI leading um, the inquiry. But um, I, I guess just the other takeaway is that these tools, if they're not properly, if the access to them is not properly managed, they do pose a risk to um, user security. And we've seen that with malicious insiders. And now we're seeing this with um, these hackers somehow gaining access to the Twitter tool specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the big takeaway here. Obviously, everyone can get hacked, but companies like Twitter uh, really need to make sure that these kind of tools have very limited access and they have tight controls around them. Otherwise, something like this happens. So hopefully Mm -hmm. this is a good lesson for them. Yeah, thanks so much, uh, Joe. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Always appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. 
I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. All right. Hi, everyone. We're back for Cypher to talk about the other awesome stories that the Motherboard crew wrote about this week. So just like every other week, we have our dear leader, Jason Kabler, here. Jason, how are you doing? Hi, Lorenzo. How are you? Oh, you know, uh, pretty good. Uh, my cat is before, alive. Before alive. we start talking about these stories, I want I want to hear about this coup. What what happened to Ben? Did you stuff him in a closet somewhere? Unfortunately, I'm not I'm not at liberty to discuss uh, the fate of our dear friend Ben Maku. All uh, our listeners need to know is that he's not here, and uh, perhaps he'll be back. But who knows? You know, unfortunately, that's not up to yeah. me. His fate <laughs> is out of my hands now. You're uh, you're piloting the ship. I trust that you are doing a great job. Yes, I think it's going well, but uh, we'll let the listeners judge, I guess. So yeah, let's talk about some stories. Um, let's start by this. I, f- I think this is like a, an epic saga. You know, I'm talking about the epic saga of the army banning people who dare to ask about American war crimes during their Warzone Twitch streams. And uh, we got a very important uh, development today. What happened? Yeah, I don't remember if we talked about this on Cypher last week because my brain has uh, failed to be able to remember anything that happened more than 15 minutes ago. And luckily, this story broke very recently, so I do remember it. Uh, But basically, uh, the Army and the Navy both have esports teams that they use for recruiting. Uh, I think that this is like a relatively new project, although I don't know too much about the history of it. In any case, in recent uh, weeks, they have been streaming on Twitch. Uh, They've mostly been streaming Call of Duty, Warzone, and a a couple other games. And during these streams, people have been logging on and trolling them, essentially, uh, by asking questions about U.S. war crimes. So uh, people will say, you know, how about all those war crimes you did? And the army. Guantanamo, yeah. Yeah, Guantanamo, etc. And the army would uh, ban them from the Twitch stream, which any normal Twitch feed would be like well within its right to do, except the army and the navy are official accounts of both the U.S. Army and the U.S. Navy, which are bound by the First Amendment. So um, there is this guy named Jordan Uhl, U-H-L, I think that's how you say his name. And he has been asking the Army about war crimes, and then he also logged on to the Navy's um, stream and was asking about Eddie Gallagher, who is the Navy SEAL that was convicted of war crimes, uh, I think, last year. And he was banned from both. And so he has... uh, been working with lawyers at the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University, and they just wrote a letter to both the Army and the Navy demanding that he be unblocked and demanding that uh, you know both branches of the military not allow, not, not ban people because 
if the government is censoring speech, regardless of what it's about, then they are uh, violating the First Amendment. Yeah, I feel like, first of all, shout out to Matthew Galt, who's been on top of the story and broke the story since the very beginning um, and has like squeezed it out of it, all its juice. Uh, great job there. And I feel like one of the things that I love about this story is that there's so many people on Twitter that like to pretend they're lawyers and they're like, wait, but this is first, uh, uh, first Amendment doesn't protect people from trolling or something. And it's like, well, if you're the government, then you cannot do this. And it's uh, very well established through cases like uh, Trump's Twitter account and stuff like that. So, Yeah, I think that's a really important point because you often have like Twitter banning people and then you have very uninformed take saying like, oh, that's a violation of the First Amendment. And it, of course, it's not because Twitter is a private company that's not, uh, you know, bound by the First Amendment. Although there are certainly arguments to be made about, you know, human rights and free expression and all this sort of thing. Like it's it's not so cut and dry as to, to say like, you know, Twitter can do whatever the hell it wants without any sort of consequence because, you know, we've, we've explored this over the years, but it's like, yeah, they can, but there are still like a lot of these social media companies operate like nation states. And a lot of them do have a goal of allowing as much speech as possible. So it's not quite as simple to say as like, there's no free expression on Twitter, um, Mm -hmm. you know, which which is the case, but I think it's just, it's a little bit more nuanced than mm-hmm. saying like, you know, these companies aren't bound by the first amendment. Yeah. Um, they're, they're not, but there's, there's some nuance there. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to an official U S government account on one of these sites, they are operating as a branch of the U S government as an official entity of the U S government. And therefore those specific accounts are bound by the first amendment and they have to, abide by it. And so, I mean, as far as like cases go, I mean, who knows what a a judge or a jury will rule, but as far as first amendment cases go, this one is like pretty cut and dry, especially Mm -hmm. considering, as you mentioned, um, the Knight, uh, Institute successfully sued Donald Trump for blocking people on Twitter. Yeah. I think also we'll see what happens here, but mm -hmm. it's very interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I think this is also a very good case of the, you know, the famous Barbara Streisand effect, because I feel like if the army and the Navy had just let it slide, you know, let people troll them on the comments and not done anything, they, you know, this wouldn't have uh, snowballed into this such a big story and no one would really talk about it. So again, you know, be careful with the Barbara Streisand effect. And speaking yeah. of uh, novel legal issues, um, looks like the recording industry is uh, still hell-bent on being awful. And they're now going after a guy who has created a pretty smart and funny algorithm called uh, Weird Al Yankovic, I think, which is basically an AI-based, AI machine learning-based uh, algorithm that creates new rhyming lyrics for existing song. Jason, first of it's all, a, it's yeah, I'll Weird AI Yankovic. Yeah, there you go. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> Weird AI Yankovic. Yep. So first of all, how does this work and why does the recording industry not like it? And what are they doing about it? Yeah, so it was developed by a Georgia Tech researcher named Mark Rydell. Um, I think we've written about him a handful of times. He, he does cool projects like this. And it basically uses machine learning to develop new lyrics to old songs. And so um, I'm not actually not sure what database is using t- for the machine learning. Like I'm not sure the corpus of text that it's using to learn here, but... Uh, basically, they're taking instrumentals from popular songs and uh, generating lyrics to go along with it that are different lyrics um, 
and calling it a parody. And he has been hit with a DMCA uh, takedown request and Twitter complied with it from the International Federation of the Phonographic Industry, which is a trade group that represents um, indie record and, and major record labels. So the we've talked about this at some point, but copyright law in the United States and I think worldwide is a shit show, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are carve outs for what's known as fair use, but uh, like if you want to claim fair use, you often need to prove it in court. Um, it needs to sort of like go down this long legal process and it's it can be costly to to sort of do that and so if you get something taken down that that's like often where copyright law ends it's like twitter gets a dmca takedown request they take down the thing and that's kind of the end of it unless the company that is filing it wants to pursue damages or the person wants to appeal it um but while fair use is complicated there are sort of like wide carve-outs for transformative uses mm-hmm. of uh, copyrighted material. So in this case, the question is whether a song that has the instrumentals of an original song but different lyrics that were generated by an AI would be a transformative work and whether it would be parody because there is all there are also carve-outs for parody. And this is all like interesting stuff for if you're like a human who has written a parody song. But in this case, it's like the AI did it. So did the AI break the law? Did Mark Rydell break the law? Like did no one break the law? Like who owns the copyright to the new song? Like there's a lot of interesting questions here. And unfortunately we don't really have any answers, but it's just like one of those very weird things that comes up when you talk about uh, AI generating art and who owns the copyright and it's something that has come up before but it's also like it's just something that we're going to deal with increasingly as we move mm. forward yeah it will be interesting to see what how this uh, ends up because it could could be a good uh, could be an important precedent and next next up we have like a kind of a mysterious story uh we work with the german weekly der spiegel uh, to break the news that um jan marsalek who is uh, an executive at wirecard a German financial tech company that's uh, under investigation for essentially making almost $2 billion disappear and making some shady stuff. Uh, he's now considered like the most wanted man uh, on earth. And it turns out that uh, someone was uh, represent- presenting him as, a, as an employee of the Grenada government, this uh, small island in the Caribbean, in a weird attempt to purchase hacking team spyware in 2013. Uh, what's going on here, Lorenzo? This is this is your story. Did you, yeah. uh, who, I guess who put maybe this you should on ask the agenda? I think there's bias and and collusion here. I don't know who put this on the agenda. You you can appeal it to the Supreme Court if you don't like it. Yeah, yeah. Now this is uh this is a very interesting scoop and a very um I didn't know about this because I am a self centered American asshole, I guess. But this is this wired wirecard story is like one of the biggest stories in the world. Um, you know, you just talked about it a little bit, but as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's like this company is a big, you know, financial tech startup. They are similar to, although not exactly like Venmo or PayPal or Square, like one of these payment processors that also just like works with a lot of companies and is like a little bit buzzy and, you know, 
it's just like cool tech that lets you move money around easy. Um, and I don't know when this happened, but in the last like month or two, this guy, Jan Marsalek, disappeared off the face of the earth and there's 1.9 billion euros missing. Is that like largely what seems to have happened here? Yeah, yeah. Wirecard is, is, is a startup, but like it's been around for, I think, more than 10 years. And uh, yeah, as you said, it's sort of in the same market as Square and other companies like that. They provide both like consumer apps, like uh, sort of like virtual uh, credit cards and prepaid, but also prepaid debit cards, like physical ones. They also provide like the backbone of uh, to manage online transactions for companies like the Japanese Rakuten, which is sort of like an Amazon, uh, Qatar Airways, KLM. And yeah, it was sort of like for years, it was uh, touted as like this success story, you know, this huge German company that was taking over the world. And then this year, earlier this year, the Financial Times had a huge expose on some uh, shady like stock manipulation. The company denied everything, but then the German regulators were like, wait, what's going on here? So they raided their offices. And since then, um, it's been, uh, everyone has been scrambling. And so, yeah, Jan Marsalek, who was the COO, so like basically their number two, uh, fled initially, reportedly fled to Belarus you know, worried that he was going to get arrested. And now he's apparently is um, uh, hiding in Russia under the protection of the FSB. So uh, this is just a slice of the Yeah, and that's not even, that's before you even get to your story. Like that's that's what happened leading up to your story. And so your story is about how Jan was allegedly involved in an attempt to buy, uh, you know, hacking tools from hacking team, which was exposed... uh, in the huge leak after hacking team got hacked, what was it, 2014 or 2015 when they got hacked? I, I don't mm-hmm. 2015, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, what, what seems to have happened here? Yeah, so what happened is that someone, um, uh, a Mexican citizen who was, uh, who worked at the time worked as an intermediary between hacking team and Mexican government agencies, um, presented, like, tried to essentially got a new deal and he said he was working with this Jan Marsalek who was a, a representative of the Granada government and this Mexican guy even sent a, a letter to hacking team that looked like an official letter from the foreign minister of Granada in which it said uh, this guy and Jan Marsalek will come to your office to get a demo we are authorizing them to act on behalf of the Granada government we're interested in your products and the weird thing here is that, like, uh, we were able to, uh, you know, with the help of Der Spiegel, we were able to talk to the the actual foreign minister of Granada, who's now the the health minister, but still works in the government. We showed him the letter, and he, the guy was like, "No, I never written this letter. This letter is a fake. Uh, I never, you know, I don't know what you're talking about." So what it looks like it happened is that this Mexican intermediary was uh, either using Jan Marsalek's name. Um, to gain legitimacy or Yamar Salek was involved in this. We don't know for sure because we could not reach to Jan Marsalek. Mar- uh, Mar- uh, but yeah, it, it looked like it was some sort of attempt to get spyware pretending to be a government. Um, it didn't go through. It's important to note that Granada never became a customer. And uh, we spoke to some former hacking team employees that did not remember this meeting, but uh, they also said that you know they were meeting so many people back in 2013 that uh, everything sort of blurred, uh, blur. It's a little bit of a blur, uh, but yeah, kind of a weird story, and uh, I think it shows how um, 
how many strange dealings uh, Jan Marsalek has been involved to in the last few years. Yeah, wacky as hell. I don't I don't think that this is like an exact corollary, but it, it'd be as if like Jack Dorsey disappeared off the face of the earth and and was a fugitive in you know Russia somewhere and had mm. taken $2 billion with him. It's like extremely weird. Yeah, and it turned out that years ago he tried to buy NSO's power or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and I mean... One uh, more for the road? Yeah, and uh, lastly, it's uh, another, you know, speaking of shady characters, um, we also broke the news that ICE, through its uh, Homeland Security Investigations arm, paid a visit to a woman uh, who helped distribute the... You know the now infamous Blue Leaks Trove. So what happened here? Well, it's another Lorenzo story. So I think uh, I think you should tell us what happened here. But I, I will set the scene. Uh, Blue Leaks is a trove of internal documents for U.S. law enforcement that showed. I think it was only U.S. law enforcement, but mm-hmm. possibly some global ones too. I'm not sure. Um, showed up on a website called Distributed Denial of Secrets, run by Emma Best, who is a freedom of information activist. And then a lot of trouble has happened. Uh, I think we've talked about them on the show before, but Twitter banned Distributed Denial of Secrets uh, under its hacked information policy. Uh, A server in Germany got seized that hosted it, and then... uh, you know, ICE visited this administrator of a website that shared it, although seemingly they only shared the the mm-hmm. leak on Discord. So I'm not exactly sure what happened here, but it is it's concerning, mm-hmm. I would say. Yeah, we spoke to a woman uh, whose name is Megan. As you said, she's one of the administrators of uh, this website called DI, which is a website we've written about in the past. It's sort of like a... Um, kind of like the, an internet archive for very weird and sometimes illegal stuff. Um, and th- their goal is to archive as much stuff as possible. Um, and yeah, as you said, at some point they were sharing uh, the torrent to Blue Leaks in their internal Discord. And Megan even helped uh, fix the torrent link and or, or something to that effect. And so somehow ICE uh, found out about her and uh, her work that she did for Blue Leaks and the uh, one one morning last week, they showed up at her house and asked them her, asked her some questions about Emma Best and the distributed denial of secrets and blue leaks, um, and yeah, it seems like this is just another escalation in um, the U.S. government uh, a battle against blue leaks and the attempts to shut down this leak and uh, go after the people uh, responsible for it. And, and it's interesting that they're going after yeah. people who have just distributed it. It's a good story. Um, it's, it's you know, Megan doesn't been ongoing, and I have no idea what's going to happen next. But it's like there's there's a lot of interesting documents in in Blue Leaks, and I think we still don't know where it actually came from. Where you know whether these were hacked. I think the mm-hmm. general consensus is that excuse me. I think the general consensus is that they were hacked, but mm-hmm. um, I don't know who did it or how they appeared or what database was hacked. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, we still don't know that. And probably the DHS and ICE are trying to figure that out. So we'll find out more soon, hopefully. Yeah, cool. Lorenzo, I think you did a great job hosting Cypher. My pleasure. And Um, the whole episode. Thank you. Yeah, it was fun. Uh, And thanks for being on the show as usual. 
yeah, we'll see you next week. And uh, maybe Ben will be back. Maybe Lorenzo will be here. It's it's hard to say, really. Who knows? It's uh, you know, life is unpredictable these days. So we want to keep uh, the podcast unpredictable too. Yeah. All right. Farewell. Thanks everyone for listening. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.